What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? This is Muscle, and this is another Two Line Music Arts Entertainment Report podcast. And today, we have a really special guest in the building. Listen, this man here is the president of Infallible Records, which is a division of Infallible Music Group, which is an independently, vertically integrated modern music company. You know, we have in the building today, we have Mr. Adam Gross in the building today. What's going on, big boss? What's up, Muscle Man? I'm looking forward to this. I've been a fan of what you've been doing for a while. Thank you. I when I seen you on my family, the fix, and I really sat down and talking the whole podcast. I said, "Listen, this guy, the information he's spitting, I would definitely love to sit down with Adam." And here we are today. Yeah, man, looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, definitely. All right, so give us like the elevator pitch of who you are and how you even got into the music space. Yeah, I uh, I grew up in New York City originally. Um, live in the Bay Area, California now. Mm-hmm. Exposed to all sorts of music as one in New York is, you know. And I was a musician, played guitar, played a little keyboard, a little, little bass, um, played in a bunch of bands. Always had a good ear. Um, and while I was in New York, I was playing in like a reggae band. Um, all the other kids in the band were, you know, Jamaican American. And we'd go, we like go to Flatbush. We play like as a backing band at these churches, <laughs> and like, you know, we would like back, you know, on like Saturday nights. There'd be like these, like they'd bring in all these local singers, and then we'd be the backing band. I wouldn't know how to play any of these songs, but then they'd start singing it, and I'd be like, okay, here we go. So I learned a lot um, from that experience, and that kind of gave me a lot of, you know, the the, the information from you know, the core of, of reggae. And I really got into that music from those experiences. And because that was the kind of music that I was just like naturally drawn to as a kid. Um, so kind of expanded from that point, you know, I just remember kind of first digging into this stuff when I was like 13, 14, and then kind of grew from there, went to college, um, continued, you know, pursuing some different music things as well as some like entrepreneurial random, uh, ventures and, and, and different things like that. And, kind of all came together from there. So by the time I was like a senior uh, in college, I had kind of started pitching ideas to my now business partners um, at, at Ineffable, um, kind of talking about different things that I thought maybe that could be done for their management clients' releases. At the time, there was no record label arm of the business. There was a management division and a live division. So management division, you know, managing all aspects of an artist's career, uh, live division, you know, own and operate venues and have some ownership stake in festivals, but there was no label division. Uh, so from there, it was like, okay, well, um, you know, our client Stick Figure has a song coming out in June called World on Fire. Um, do everything you think you can for that release and, you know, we'll take it from there. And then our client Collie Buds has a song coming out a few weeks later called Love and Reggae. Do everything you think we can do for that song. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we can take it from there. So from that process, we I kind of came out here um, to the Bay Area and we kind of tried it all out, uh, kind of just doing label services for our management clients. And from that process, we realized we could launch the label arm of the company, um, you know, which which I run. Um, and from there, I became one of the, the partners in the overall business. And the point of the label division was to kind of create a label that we would want to sign our artists to as managers. Mm-hmm. We were not necessarily the biggest fans of, um, you know, kind of the options. And so we were just kind of doing all the services in house so that our clients could own their masters, 
make revenue from that music and be able to make the best touring decisions, right? If you can make money from your recorded music, then you can make the best touring decisions because you have this passive income coming in. So that's kind of what led to the launch of the label arm and kind of advocating for those style of deals. Uh, and from there, we've kind of become the the top independent uh, label in the space. Right there. So even you, before we even get into the business of the business, where did you get interested from actually playing music to now want to get into the business side of music? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. It's kind of a natural, like, you know, it's kind of like a natural process. I think um, I always, as I said, I always had a good ear. Like if you play a song and I had a guitar or a keyboard or something, like I can figure out how to play the progression and stuff like that pretty fast. I never really realized how that ear would professionally um kind of come into place you know because now i'm able to provide a and r insights and really kind of combine the data with the music side with the ear with the feel of it and they'll marry those two together because i think both things matter so i guess it was kind of that natural process of like seeing like okay i have this really good understanding um of the actual musical elements of things uh, as well as this kind of uh, entrepreneurial spirit and kind of like passion for figuring out how to like amplify things that I like or that I agree with. Um, and I think that's kind of how it all kind of came to place and just kind of, I guess it's in my nature to just like email people relentlessly until they like are down to, to try things out, you know, like stay on the, the, the persistent side of annoying, you know, what other business, because you said you're an entrepreneur, what other business were you involved with, whether they were handing out flyers for promoters or any other thing yeah. musically that you were involved with before you actually got here? Yeah. So like, you know, where I went, where I went to school, there was like the student group that got funding to put on all the, 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 you know, uh, concerts and brought in like speakers and comedians and stuff. So I was in charge of all the production of that. Um, and so we brought in like mainly hip hop. So we had like Ty Dolla Sign and Lil Uzi Vert and like big name artists that we were producing shows uh, for all the students. So I kind of got my touch in on that sense. And then at the same time, I kind of just started reaching out to all these different artists and just like randomly saying, hey, like let me find brand partnership and sponsorship opportunities for you. And sure enough, anyone will be down to meet with you if you're saying, hey, I'll do this for free. Mm -hmm. And if I find something for you, I'll, I'll take a commission, right? So I found myself one summer... Um, as a kid, like between, I don't know what year it was, freshman, sophomore year of college, meeting with all of these different artists that I was like a huge fan of um, and their teams um, because I was just emailing them and saying, hey, let me help find you these opportunities. And then kind of outside of music, there was all sorts of stuff too. Like I, um, when I was in high school, I had a like blog about the Mets. I was like a big Mets fan. And through that process, I like started selling these like t-shirts and um, there was a guy named Ryan Braun who was the MVP uh, in baseball that year. He played for a team, the Milwaukee Brewers, and he had been accused of taking steroids. So I, I made this T-shirt that was like making fun of, um, you know, his taking steroids. And I started selling that, and then I got a cease and desist letter from CAA um, because <laughs> because I was like profiting off of his his name and likeness. But I was just totally making fun of him. But I was like 15, and I had probably sold like 40 shirts. You know, it wasn't anything like. Crazy. But yeah, I always had this like just thing for like pursuing random like creative things. You know what I mean? Like not 
standard stuff but like just random creative things where people are like what are you like what is this thing you're doing right now you know i didn't know i don't know if any of them would ever work out but <laughs> we're here you are who were some of the artists that you actually got to connect with through the cold email and get some brand deals or whatever worked out yeah i met with um like when i was a kid i met with uh kabaka pyramid and raging fire um and uh chronix's team and protege's team um yeah just just like it was all in a period of a few months and i didn't really land much you know mm. i wasn't really like i honestly like it wasn't like a super successful venture but the successful part about it was realizing this ability to to pitch and to actually get in the door um and you know be the the starting point of creating you know later on relationships as well mm -hmm. So, okay, so then you're doing all of that stuff there. So then what was it about Inevitable Now that you decided to email them opposed to a gazillion record labels that you could have emailed and said, okay, let's do something together. What was it about them in particular? I think I saw something different. Um, I never thought I'd become a label guy. You know, I never, never thought that was what was going to be my thing. When, when I, at a certain point, I thought I wanted to be in the music business. I was like, okay, maybe I want to be a manager or, you know, something like that. But I never thought I wanted to be the label because of my perception of what labels were. And so Ineffable wasn't a label at the time. And I liked the kind of ethos and philosophy um, that they were putting out there about how to work with artists and, you know, the right way to do deals with people. And on top of that, I was seeing the company uh, kind of, I saw there was this, this pretty fast growth going on as well as like they were working with a lot of artists that I was a big fan of. Um, so it kind of aligned in that way to me where I was like, all right, let me send this email. I could have never known like how good of a fit it would have been on both ends, um, at the time, you know, um, but something felt right about that moment. Um, and then it, you know, I think it all kind of grew from that point. And when you were cool emailing, you were still in New York at this point or you had moved to, to California? I, so I went to school right outside of Chicago. Um, so I was out there, I was like a few weeks away from graduating. Um, and I hadn't, I didn't have like a job lined up or anything. And so like that song world on fire came out, I think it was like June 8th or something, 2018. And I was graduating on like June 20th or something. And then the love and reggae song came out like right around then too. So it's like, I didn't have like a job or anything, but like, I was like, this feels like the right thing. I'm going to do this. And I, you know, I, I was working, I was, I was do, I was working on those songs, like just for like, like just to prove this point, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to get paid this money or do this. It was like, no, let me, let me do this. But it just felt right. And honestly, that's one of the biggest lessons I would say to anyone who wants to be in the music business is it's like, you got to show your value because everybody loves music and saying that you love music or this or that, like, you know, you have to show your value. Um, and you have to kind of figure out like, how am I going to add, um, something different to the table and other people are, uh, in order for like you to make sense in the, in the realm of the music business. Cause it's a super entrepreneurial, you know, kind of world. Mm -hmm, got you. So even when they said, okay, let's just try out this, so I'm the stick figure and the collie, but what did you know about the music up until that point there where you thought you could add value to what they were doing already? There's a few things. I mean, one is I, I actually had like worked on like I had basically released like this like EP that I had helped like write um, and produce and stuff. And I had figured out and it's off the Internet. So no one uh, try to find it. Um, 
And I, you know, had basically figured out like, okay, how can I get this EP to go number one on iTunes reggae chart? Mm-hmm. Um, and through that process, I was like just trying out all these different marketing tools, right? And then from that point, I was like, okay, well, there were some things I learned from that marketing process on my own that I could apply to people who make music that's a billion times better. Mm-hmm. And so there was just that element of it. And then I just kind of like just stripped it down to the basics. I was like, okay, well, where do people, how do people consume music right now? Like what are the different platforms? You know, there's Spotify, there's Apple, there's YouTube, there's Pandora, there's Amazon, there's Tidal, there's radio, there's, you know, I just, there's, there was, you know, at the time, uh, you know, blogs, which are still a thing now, but there were, there were blogs, there's all these different things. And so I was just like, all right, how can I start, you know, going after all these different areas and also researching where these artists have been talked about in the past or where similar artists have been talked about in the past and start pitching to and reaching out to those people um, that might then be interested in it, right? And one of those tools at the time was like Spotify listener playlists, right? So the Spotify editorial playlists that everybody talks about in terms of like those that are controlled by the people that work at Spotify. But there's also Spotify listener playlist, which is a playlist that like you or I could have that all of a sudden has a big following. And so even kind of at that point, I was just going through and trying to find the contact information um, for as many of those humans that controlled playlists as possible, reaching out to them. And kind of from there, you just kind of started figuring out, you know, it's kind of like the 10,000 hours principle, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I literally just spent all my time figuring out how do you make this music bigger um, in the streaming world? You know, that's that's what I thought about. Mm -hmm. And so like once I started doing that, and now that I've done that every day for the past, you know, five years, it's like you just start, you just start kind of becoming, um, you know, making it an expertise because that's what you're thinking about all the time. It makes sense. And what were you taking in school? What did you graduate? Uh, I was a communication major and a poli sci and sociology minor. What is exactly poli science? Uh, political science. It's like the the study of um, like the processes behind, uh, different, like the scientific processes behind politics. Um, so it's kind of like studying the way politics works, um, from a scientific perspective. So like, um, you know, what drives politicians, what are kind of certain, um, you know, economic principles that are in place when certain things happen and you just kind of study and kind of learn over time how those different things affect each other. You seem to be extremely inquisitive it's like your thing is why you always have a big why and you want to know how this thing works and it's like it seems like once you focus on something there's no letting go until you figure it out yeah i think the thing is honestly is just that like there's so much to learn and like i don't even know anything yet if you think about it you know i'm like i i think about like if i if i went if i went to if i thought about like two years ago Mm -hmm. and i go to now, I'm like, damn, I know so much more information than I knew two years ago. And I know in two years and in four years and in five years and in 10 years, we're just going to become better at what we're doing uh, because of that process of learning, right? There's so many people like I'm, you know, I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm 27 and, and, uh, going on 28 next week. Um, but like I learned from all these different people who are experts in, all these different spaces because everything matters. If you want to go full digital and full, oh, it's 2023, here's how people consume music, here's how to take advantage of the algorithms, you're not going to understand the actual cultural elements behind why certain music does what it does. Mm-hmm. So, and, and the flip side is if you only focus on those cultural elements, 
then you're not going to understand necessarily how to also take advantage of it on streaming, right? It's both sides. And I think that's where it's, you know, I've been fortunate to have, you know, a number of, of friends and, and mentors and people that I've, I've learned from who have, you know, taught me um, how things work in those different spaces. And I've kind of synthesized that information to be able to figure out how to, to continue moving it. Like for instance, like, dance hall right like if you are to only focus on streaming platforms you're not going to have a hit like it's not going to happen there's never been a hit in dance hall that popped off because of streaming platforms mm. it's always first had to work on the streets with the djs in the parties in the different core markets right both in jamaica throughout the rest of the caribbean in miami in new york in toronto in london and atlanta and you know it's like it's it's there's these markets and there's all these individuals in those different markets who are the go-to people um, who like, understand what's going on in the streets, who understand which parties are happening and all these different aspects. And if you're not getting those things to pop there first, it's not going to then go beyond that, you know? So that's just one of those elements. It's like you have to kind of take in information when you go into, you know, a new market. Or I think too, like when we first started working with Kess in Trinidad and understanding like the Soka space, right? Like what we've been able to do with Kess and first of all, the only reason it, it works is because in my mind, Kess is like a, a generational talent and just an absolute unbelievable um, artist. Like just, it, it blows me away, honestly. And and so it's like, but Kess was in a situation where it's like, when Kess drops a song, there's all these DJs who are going to play it right away. All these DJs who are ready to go because of that market. Now, by combining that with taking advantage of the streaming algorithms and stuff like that. And we were able to like double Kess's Spotify listenership within, you know, a couple of years, right? From like 280,000 monthly listeners to 560,000 because it's both sides of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And before that, you know, no one was necessarily uh, fully taking advantage of the way that those streaming algorithms work. It's understanding, as you said, understanding both worlds, the real world and the digital world. And once you could combine them the real proper way, that's where the magic really happens. For sure. And, and yeah, and I think it's also like understanding that like there's all these different ways that people spend their time and their attention, right? So it's like, if you think about it, anywhere where people place their attention is a place and an opportunity for music to penetrate and become a part of people's lives, right? So it's like, you know, anything from like going to a basketball game and they're playing whatever songs in the arena to going to a movie. And here's the sync. Here's the, here's the song that's playing in the movie to TikTok, to Instagram, to YouTube, to Facebook, to Twitter, to Spotify, to you, you know, to every single, every single place where people place their attention to the parties, to the DJs, to the radio. So it's like, you could focus on one thing or you could try to figure out how to be good at and understand every single place because one thing that's true today and that makes me so excited about music um, and the music industry today is that like there's seven, eight billion people in the world. Every single one of them listens to music in some way. And, you know, so many of them have access to internet. And so everyone is reachable in a way that's way less expensive than it used to be. Um, and if you can figure out how to optimize performance via all those different ways in which people place their attention, then it creates a lot of opportunity uh, for artists to reach new audiences. That That's true. It's like, uh, I see it as a catch 22 sometimes. Streaming is great, 
But CDs and vinyl was great also because with CDs and vinyl as a smaller artist, independent artist just coming in, you could make some good money selling CDs up front. With streaming now, you have to, with streaming, you have to be doing real crazy numbers. So it's almost more or less the streaming for independent is almost like promo because they're not really seeing any money off of the stream per se. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's two sides of it. I think, yeah, sure. If you could if, if you were an artist back then and you could print CDs and sell them at shows and you had that ownership and you don't have to worry about the the cost of physical distribution and everything, you know, there might be some more immediate cash in that in that sense, right? The problem is that the the cost of the the, the distribution costs were much higher. Someone needed to manufacture the CDs if you wanted to get them to stores. If you wanted to market it, you know, that's a whole nother thing. But as your point is, you know in person at shows, direct to fan stuff, right? The flip side is with streaming, you know, you're right in that if you're a brand new artist starting out today, you're not going to make a, a full-time living from your streaming. It's going to right away. It's going to take a while. Um, but the flip side is if you put your head down and you focus on taking advantage of the tools that exist with streaming, you can get to a place for way cheaper than in that era where you can develop these passive income streams um, from getting all these fans to stream your music. Because now it's like, some instead of someone buying your CD up front and listening to it thousands of times and you don't continue to monetize it, now, as soon as they stream it, you continually monetize it and you don't have any more expenses on that music anymore. So five, 10 years, 15 years later, which is why I always preach to people like to create timeless music and not focus on what's going to be a hit for one month or what's going to pop for a couple of weeks, because if you can create timeless music today, you'll get rewarded for that because it'll continue to be streamed down the line. So that's why to me, it's like, you know, it's true. It takes time, but if you follow the principles of streaming growth and of audience growth and you make really great music, um, there is really tremendous opportunity if you're in the right label deals uh, to make money from your stream. It's um, so that's the, 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 you know, caveat too. It's a, it's a business, and that's what a lot of people don't understand. It's where art meets business, and a lot of people are too focused on the art that a lot of the business slips through the cracks, and then they find themselves in a funny label deal that hinders them, and then they don't want to create the art anymore because of them not focusing on the business of the business. For sure. And and, and the thing is that's, that's so interesting or kind of cool is that, like, you're rewarded on the business side for your ability to create legitimate connections with your fans. Mm -hmm. Like you are rewarded on the business side for creating music and creating relationships where fans feel like you're going to be, you need to be a part of their lives. So the positive of that is if you make music that affects people positively um, and you continually figure out how to continually add value to their lives, how to be creating content, um, that makes those people feel like, you know, you're doing something to make their lives better, then they'll reward you in return eventually with, you know, merch or tickets or streaming or stuff like that. Like there is this, you know, fan karma meter in that way. Right. So it is, it is, you know, the, the understanding of the business is super important. And I think, you know, the, the thing I always get back to is like the way that you grow on streaming platforms is by picking a sound getting better at that sound over time, studying your sound, studying how to make the production better, the mixing better, the songwriting better, you know, getting better at all those elements 
of your sound, mm-hmm. but keeping being consistent in finding that that sound and that brand. And that way you create this situation where you have a group of fans who know what to expect from you, but you just get better at it. And then that word naturally spreads and it works across all platforms, you know? And that's that's what's pretty cool to me about, you know, music in 2023. That it, it grows. It could it's actually because it's in a digital ecosystem, you could actually build upon things and you could see, you could see the analytical growth from an artist's point of view. Before you would just have to go on the road. You'd see your shows might get bigger or your shows might get smaller. You might hear your music on this radio station or that radio. There wasn't no real way to gauge what was going on per se. Yeah, that's true. And 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 it's it's it gives you information about even like A and R type decisions as well that you might otherwise have wanted a label for or wanted someone else for. Now you can look at your streaming and say, okay, last five years I put out all these different songs and this song is performing best of all those songs. Mm-hmm. It that's literally the streaming platform screaming at you and saying, make more music like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> make more music like this. Mm-hmm. Now creatively it needs to match up with what someone wants to do and i would never tell an artist that you know here's the sound you have to make or that right but if you're thinking about it in terms of okay how do i grow my audience how do i grow my fan base the information's right there for you you know what performs well and the same thing is on on uh, social media platforms you know what type of content performs best for you because you can go through tiktok or instagram or youtube shorts or wherever and you can see which posts you did that got the most views and engagement Okay, now when you're going to sit down and create content, lean into things that worked already and save yourself time and money and resources. And I think people get very exhausted from these processes because it's exhausting, man. Like I I really have so much respect for for every artist and every artist we work with because man, to be out there and like not only be making music, but you have to be creating content all the time like every day now, like it is an exhausting process, man. And and you people feel like they live and die by the algorithm. They have that day where their posts do terribly. And then the next day it pops off and they feel like they want to quit. You know, I've, I've had artists Mm -hmm. we've signed who basically years later, like, man, like I was going to quit music. I was thinking about quitting music, um, you know, before we started working together because I just wasn't seeing my number. My, I wasn't seeing my numbers grow. Um, and I, I knew my music was good, but I wasn't seeing my numbers grow. I was like, what's the point of keep going? Right. And it's just because you're not necessarily taking advantage of the the best audience growth uh, techniques. You know, it's it's both sides. It's making the best music and then figuring out how to market it to your audience best. Makes sense. But one thing I know as a creative person, knowing what works on social media is cool, but that almost puts you into a box where, okay, I know once I do check off these four boxes here, it's going to work. But what about I still want to explore other stuff that I don't know works also so do i have to put out five songs that i know that works and then try three or four more that's experimental what would be the best way as somebody creative so they're not a real slave to the algorithm yeah and the thing is to that point too like just because a song works on social media doesn't mean it's going to actually work on streaming and actually be that long-term success for you you know i've seen it before where people have songs that that pop off um on social media and don't translate otherwise so that's why it's like I, I don't think anyone should really just focus on creating music um, to take advantage of like, oh, here's what's exactly going to pop off in, you know, whatever, June of 2023. I think it's 
everything to me comes back to timeless. You know, everything comes back to timeless music and experimenting is cool and trying different things out. And I think, you know, my thing is, you know, if you've had a couple albums and you've had some success and you're seeing, you know, which types of songs do well for you, it makes sense to at least have some singles in your next project that lean into that vibe, you know? But again, that's someone's decision, right? That's that's whatever someone wants to do with their career, you know? So it's it's always interesting for me putting out this information, right? Because my thing is, okay, I want to help give artists information. Um, you know, you've, you've mentioned to me like the stuff that I'm posting on social media, right? Like I'm trying to put out information to help people skip those steps that are going to waste their time, you know, because it's so tough to figure out there's all these different places to shoot. So where do you go, right? So, but it's tough for me because at the same time, I don't want anyone to think that I'm saying, here's what you have to do in order to do this, or here's the type of music you have to make, right? All I'm trying to do is say, hey, there's information out there that's telling you what's going to help grow, right? But back to your point, all of that needs to come back to the timeless music factor, man. Like if you, if you pull up any charts or any songs and you see the songs like that are still on charts from four years ago, five years ago, eight years ago, like it's usually not the ones that like had a really hot first week. It's usually the ones that took like two summers. You know, we go back to that, what I was saying earlier about like, you know, kind of those, those songs that those big dance hall songs that, that kind of went quote unquote mainstream or whatever you want to call it over the last couple of decades, mm -hmm. those songs all hit in the core on the streets with the DJs and the parties before they went, you know, beyond that, you know, like the Egyptian hold and Charlie ba black party animal and broke off your back. And, you know, those types of, of, of records that, you know, quote unquote, crossed over i'm not a big fan of that word but like they took multiple summers you know so i do think we live in this world where it's all about this instant gratification element and people want to be like yo my video has has you know got a million views on youtube in the first couple of days it's like that's gr that might feel great right now but if that does not lead to that song streaming in three four five six seven years then you're just spending all this time and money for these hype moments instead of for longevity and things that are actually going to give you a sustainable career. It's hard to sell that to somebody right now that's used to this instant gratification where I know if I do this, this is what's going to get the hype right now. But if I do this over here, it might not get hype, but it's going to last long. A lot of people are caught up in the now, the right now, the instant gratification, the hype with me and these friends here and not really see the bigger picture of what it is. Yeah, I think it's just like human nature, you know, and I think it's like the fix of anything in, in life. You know, it's like if you're dealing with, um, you know, uh, if you're if you're going through depression or anxiety or some sort of mental health thing, like most likely in order to help yourself um, get better at those things, it's going to take time, right? Like whether you go to therapy or you start getting into, you know, meditation or cardio or whatever those things are that you add to the plate to help you get through those things, you don't just solve it overnight, right? I think it's similar. Like you don't go and run a marathon tomorrow if you want to be able to run a marathon. You have to train over time, right? So I think most things in our life take time. And I think 
we're being sold all the time via advertisements and different things, things that'll change that process. You turn on the TV and you have all these different ads for all sorts of medications that you might not need, but you see it and you're like, oh, wow, like, okay, that could improve my life. Boom, right? They don't have that in most countries. You know, I'm not actually sure in Canada what the, what the law is, but like, I know that most places in the world, like if you go to Europe, you don't turn on the TV and have all these pharmaceutical ads thrown at you. In the U.S., you do, right? So we only we only catch it because whenever we watch the American stations, we'll see it. But see in Canada, that. the laws are different. You can't advertise. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's like just that's such a random example, but it is this just this concept of being fed things to give you quick fixes in life, mm-hmm. and it's really, really, really difficult to tell somebody, listen, your music is dope. You're starting to get some numbers, but for you to start like having sustainable career where you can feed yourself and your family, like that's going to take five, 10, like it's going to take a long time. That's a really hard thing to, to think to swallow, um, to, to try at anything for a long period of time. So it completely makes sense, you know, but it's just the reality, man. And, and, and I think it's just a matter of more and more artists who have that longevity, uh, continuing to kind of speak out about how that worked because oftentimes you only see the artists once they're peaking but you don't see how they got to that point you know you don't see the processes that were put in place and the grind that got to that point so you know i think that maybe one of those things that could happen is just to to have that information out there more um but it's it's just one of those things that's just to some extent never going to be solved because we live in an instant gratification world like somebody brought in uh donuts into our office yesterday two days ago and like i was like all right i'm gonna have one donut like day goes by i've eaten like five donuts you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah. so you understand but it's just part of the human nature you know what i mean when you when you guys started the record uh, the record label division now in ineffable who was the first signee or is it exactly signees that you're doing with the um, record division? What exactly are you doing with that division there? Yeah. So the, so the label division and, you know, my, my team, uh, we work on both uh, our management clients, certain management clients releases, as well as non-management clients releases that we sign as well. Um, so, you know, we'll be working on, um, you know, all the Kali Buds releases, who was actually our, our first ever management client way back in the day. Uh, we'll work on all the stick figure uh, releases as a management client, but then we'll also be working on, you know, label clients, like I mentioned, Kess, or um, we just put out the the Sean Paul, Barris Hammond, uh, Rebel Time okay. record. So, With even that record there, the Sean Paul and Barris Hammond, how did something like that come along because i know sean paul has ducky rock bears hammond has harmony house so where did you fit in or how does a deal like that work yeah so without uh getting into too many specifics um uh duddy it it is a duddy rock uh release so he has sean has his independent um kind of label arm uh, that he works on um with his team, really great team, Sean and, and Steve and Jules and um, Jigzag and News and um, Ronnie. And there's a great, great entire team over there. Um, so they uh, were looking for someone to partner with for the distribution of that record. Um, and so it was kind of like a joint release between Duddy Rock and Ineffable. And that was kind of the first one that we, um, we did together. 
Um, and so that's kind of how, yeah, it came about uh, just through, um, you know, our kind of natural growth and, and everybody kind of seeing that happening and um, being able to kind of get the pitch in and, and um, you know, everyone felt like it was a, it was a good situation for everybody. And so kind of like a dream come true um, situation for me. I mean, those are two of my favorite artists. I, I think back to like, kind of those those gigs i was talking about playing in the day and like how we would listen to so much just like ferris hammond all the time as we would like be driving to those gigs and then sean obviously just has like the most like legendary catalog um and it's just kind of like you know to me is is the biggest dancehall artist in the world um so yeah it's kind of one of those things and it's you know one thing me and you were talking about earlier is like this concept you know that i think of like you know, kind of pursuing and and thinking through what your dreams are and trying to figure out how to make those things happen. And that's why I have this idealism around artists and ability to grow audiences because I feel like there's a way to do it. There's a way to go through this process, but it takes time. And it's about figuring out what your goals are and then figuring out how to achieve them, you know? Mm -hmm. it's basically reverse engineering the situation. It's like, okay, this is where I want to be. I want to be a mega superstar across all these countries. Okay, cool. Now let's reverse how we're going to get there in the first place. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because one of the, one of the things that I've spent a lot of time kind of pushing forward and talking about is like, there's all this conversation about how like reggae and dance hall, like the market share you know, so small and it's not as big as it used to be and not as hot as it used to be. Right. Mm -hmm. The thing is like per capita, there's no country in the world that has as big of a market share, um, on music as Jamaica does. Right. In terms of the fact that there's a country of 3 million people, Mm -hmm. um, and there is a genre from that country that is one of the top 12 or so genres in the world. Right. So it's like per capita per person, the shit market share is ridiculous, right? So I always kind of take a pause on that whole theory of like, well, it's not a huge thing. It's, 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 I disagree. And part of that is because there are people making reggae and dancehall all around the world who are influenced by Jamaica, right? Not just those that are kind of now making pop music or reggaeton or things like that, where it's like this Dembow beat that's become part of every Justin Bieber and Drake and Ed Sheeran song or... Um, that has essentially influenced all of reggaeton music. And now you have Bad Bunny as the biggest, you know, artist in the world, but also people who fly the flag of reggae too, right? Those are artists who don't call it reggae. But then there's artists who are making reggae who call it reggae, who are, you know, some artists we work with here in the US or in Hawaii or in the Solomon Islands or in, you know, all parts of the world. So mm-hmm. there's all these different scenes around the entire world. And the more that people can think of all those different scenes as one thing, then the market share is actually way greater than anyone thinks. And that's where the whole thing can continue to grow. So one of the things that we're trying to do is like push forward this concept of like, not just like the Caribbean diaspora, but the greater like worldwide island diaspora. There's something that every island has in common around the world um, in terms of like if you go to basically any island, there is a local reggae bands that are like the biggest bands in that island. And so if all that stuff can come together, then all of a sudden these scenes can come together and everything can grow a lot more, right? So it's like 
we've done kind of a few different projects to push that forward. We did this this um, uh, project that Collie Buds has produced uh, three years now called Cali Roots Rhythm, uh, which is based yep, around the, the festival Cali Roots 2. Um, and there's one coming out in a few weeks and a couple songs have rolled out already. J-Vibe also is a, another producer on it. And it's pushing forward the biggest reggae artists and you know reggae infused or similar artists that are from all around the world, all on one project. So all of a sudden you have all these people coming together with like 20 plus songs who are all pushing it. And now you have the artist from, you know, Jamaica, from California, from Hawaii, from France, from all these different places who have never heard of each other's music all on one project, you know, or like we did that with, um, with Kess where I was always like, damn, I really feel like Soka could actually work really well in Hawaii and in the kind of Polynesian islands as well, but they just don't know of each other. So we basically had uh, that same producer, J-Vibe, make a reggae remix of Kess's song, Licky Ticky, and then we put on Maoli and J-Bug on it, um, who are like the two biggest artists in Hawaii, and now that song is all over radio in Hawaii, and Kess is building this entire new market out there. Mm. It's, it's strategy, and it's strategy and structure. So... Even when you got into the business, though, you said, okay, I'm going to get into the business of reggae business. Did you find that there was a strategy and structure in the business already or that was something lacking? There's definitely, I mean, yeah, there's definitely strategy and structure to some extent, but there's definitely a lot of work um, that can be done as well. And I think it's just understanding the, the elements that have led to those different barriers that exist instead of saying, oh, well, why is this like this? Or why is this like that, right? And I think especially for me, it's like as an outsider and as someone who's not from the Caribbean or from Jamaica, like I'm not coming in here and saying, yo, this is how things should work or this is how, you know, I think should have been done. And it's just not my place necessarily, right? What I do, what I can do is push forward a vision for, um, you know, how artists can monetize their music and an alternative uh, to maybe other label structures and deals that artists have been signing in the past that I think have led to a lot of artists getting taken advantage of. I think that artists have been taken advantage of to an extent that people have no full understanding of publicly. Um, and people would be shocked if they found out uh the structure of deals and the amount of money on the back end that some of their favorite favorite artists make from their biggest songs. So to me, it's like, I want to push forward an alternative model mm -hmm. and through that have a system where everyone can win. And essentially that at the same time, also pushing forward the principles of audience growth. So those artists that we don't work with can grow their audiences too. Because at that point, there's a way bigger digital ecosystem, a way bigger streaming ecosystem, and it'll make it a lot easier for the newer artists to go on and get their music recommended to all these other artists because there's a, a healthy ecosystem that exists. So to me, it's, okay, push forward these principles of audience growth, of A&R, of how to grow your audience, work with as many artists as we, as we can. And through those two things together, um, you know, I really think that, these scenes will grow and people will naturally start to put in place, you know, business practices that, that, that are, are comfortable for people. Makes sense. Now you're doing all this stuff here. Now, what was it like the first time going on, going to Jamaica where your feet are underground, you're smelling the air, you're now in the middle of it. What was that like now? First time being there. 
Uh, yeah, that was crazy, man. Um, I am unable to go to sleep before 5 a.m. Uh, in that situation, I am out at whatever street dance hall party is happening that night um, till 4 or 5 a.m. And then I'm up and meeting with people all day. Um, like, but I'm not going to go to, you know, I didn't see a beach. It's so funny when people like, when you, when you tell people who've never been out there when I'm like, yeah, I, I was in Jamaica. I didn't see a beach, you know, like, I, like I'm in Kingston. Like that's not that's, what I'm here know. for. Yeah. Like, you know, it's not so that if you said to me, all right, you're going to be out drinking every night till 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to, and you're going to be alive at the end of that, that period of time because of like just exhaustion, I would be like, I don't know how I'm gonna be able to do that. Right. But because I was taking in so much energy and excitement and culture, I was energized. Like it kept me going. Like I was fully energized, like no additional like drugs that were, uh, that I'm hiding that actually kept me going or any stimulants. Like, like, no, like, like literally I was energized by what was around me and, you know, really seeing like, to the point we were saying before, like seeing what's going on on the streets, like seeing what music is being played at parties, seeing what songs come on and knowing that there's 30 people there that all know that exact same dance that are all doing it together. And it's like, and knowing that, you know, what people don't know as well, who don't, who've never been out there or understand the culture is like the best parties are oftentimes in neighborhoods that are like the most dangerous neighborhoods during the day. But at night you're good because they basically, you know, figure out a situation that allows the neighborhood to make money. So the Don makes sure that like no one's going to get hurt that night. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating like experience. Um, but also like, you know, being out there is super rewarding and fun because I, I, I go back to that idealism, right? Like to mm-hmm. me, I don't ever want to lose that idealism. Like I think that the entire, the music in Jamaica and like, if you go to Kingston, just like within, you know, 50 miles, like the, the, the talent per capita is insane. Like, I'm just like running into all these different people. I'm like, this is crazy. All of you live right here. Like, so it's brings me back to that idealism of like, man, like I really feel with these different principles of audience growth and of A&R and streaming and all these things I'm talking about that we're not even close to hitting the point that music from Jamaica can kind of get to again. Um, and that it's just about that information being put out there. I think, you know, some people might preach more of like, um, uh, like the only way to be successful is to become a superstar. But the reality is most artists aren't going to become superstars. So I just think that the more that people, that these, that these artists can hear alternatives to that model while still striving to become a superstar. Um, then it creates a lot of excitement. But anyway, yeah, being in Jamaica, it's, it's, it's a special, special place. Was the first time you were down there when you went down for the conference where had you and Shaggy and stuff on the panel? Yeah, that was actually my first time there because if you think about it, like, you know, the, the kind of time period of which the label has been around, a huge part of it was like that early COVID time where everything was shut down. So it's like almost only recently that, you know, everything was like moving again. And, and so, but now it's like, I know I'll be in Jamaica, like at least twice a year for the rest of my life. What was that like now being on a panel with somebody like a superstar, like Shaggy, remember you're probably the newest individual on this panel right here. What was that feeling like? 
it was cool, man. Um, you know, Shaggy's Shaggy's a legend. I've I've gotten to know him over the years. I've always had really good conversations with him. Um, he's certainly not afraid to say what he thinks, um, and and will always say that. But he's also totally open to like disagreement and wants that. And like, so it's like you know we agree on certain things about um, the industry, and we disagree on certain things about the industry. And so even being on those panels, it was just intellectually like an enjoyable experience because i was able to like present what i thought um and there's you know you can people can see the similarities and the and the contrasts of that of those things um but yeah i really respect um you know what he's done and what a lot of people have done to just like get information out there you know like that's that's to me what it's about it's like how can we get more information out there and so you know, even being out there for that, that conference, you know, as you brought up, like to me, I think I was generally pretty well received because I was just like saying it was on my mind. I wasn't like writing out like a bunch of notes about like, here's what I want to say. And here's my strategy. Here's this, like, I'm just saying what I think. And I think that that attracted a lot of people because I think there's maybe been a lacking of um, that style of information being shared. Um, and then maybe there's, you know, some people that it, it turned off because, um, they're challenged by informa- information being democratized and maybe they've profited from, um, uh, information not being democratized. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's been an interesting process seeing those things come into place. Um, and I think, you kind of learn who who the real ones are and who those are that you want to continue working with and learning from because man there's a lot of there's a lot of OGs out there who like as i said have taught me so much information like mm-hmm. i was saying like the whole like peewee over in new york like understands those core markets and the way that it works with the DJs and everything at such a high level and has never hesitated to share information about that, you know, and, and we've, we'll have hour long conversations. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. Like over time, you know, learning who you want to continue doing things with, um, and, and creating those relationships and, and, and pushing things forward in that way. Got you. And what's been the biggest pushback you've received so far, especially coming in with your style? I consider you like the Gary V of music business where you're just, <laughs> you're just gonna tell him you're just gonna say it all you know you understand because you know most people aren't gonna do anything about it anyhow but you're just gonna give them the information what's been the biggest pushback you've noticed the pushback is and 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 overwhelmingly most overwhelmingly relationships are, are positive and and everything's good the, the the few you know the pushbacks i think are um you know as I said, this idea that people profit from um, relationships and people profit from having information and people profit from uh, status quo. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of money to be made in status quo. I mean, we, we, we go back to the political science thing again, right? Like there's, there's, there's money to be made um, being in positions of power where you wield influence. So, I want to do away with that process as much as possible and democratize things. So there's going to be those that are naturally um, hurt by that 
and who don't carry the same amount of no pun intended muscle um, as 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 they did before. Um, so there's that, and then there's just you know I think even as we've had more more success in what we're doing, um, you know everyone likes the underdog story, everyone likes the come up, but then once you're kind of having more success, once you came up, target. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a weird process to be honest. Like I'm, I'm, it's like, I, I don't, I have no interest in like being anybody's enemy. Um, that's not in my nature or in the way that I go about things. Um, and then every now and then you get some crazy email or DM or something. You're like, what is happening? Like, where did this person come up with this shit? You know? Um, so I don't know. It's, it's definitely been like an interesting, um, thing to experience and and i don't see that changing anytime soon because i just think we're going to keep growing and continue to help democratize information okay so then let's go down even one step further what is it like being a jewish man in a caribbean base type of business um i don't i mean i don't think that the religion or ethnicity um is super significant on a day-to-day basis in relation to that because I'm working with people who are good with all people. Um, I think that maybe what you're referring to is there have been like some, like there's obviously anti-Semitism that exists. Um, and you know, you can pull up, you know, to your point, the, the, the fix podcast and go see like a 15 minute segment about this. And then you can go look at the comment section and it's like, you know, it's a little surprising um, because you have all these people commenting who have never met a Jewish person before who are like buying into all these crazy conspiracies um, that are completely false. Um, and, you know, at the same time, it's like, that's just a reality of our world. You know, like race, racism uh, is obviously a, a major issue. Um anti-Semitism, sexism, homophobia, like every, everything. Right. So it's just, it's just a, it's just part of what we, what we all have to deal with, um, no matter who we are and what our background is. And I think, um, you know, what I want to do is like try to understand why people believe what they believe instead of just assuming the worst in somebody and then trying to help change minds. Um, because that's the only way to do it. Right. If you go at it from a perspective of, of hate or you just assume the worst in people, it's really hard to get people on your side. So I just look at it from that perspective, try to understand, you know, what's inside and what information is being gained that are getting people to their perspectives that they have um, and kind of reverse engineering it um, from, from there, you know? And I think to what we were talking about before as well, it's like information spreads really fast now. And the more, salacious and the more like controversial the topic is the more that that stuff spreads so conspiracies and and fake information spread really fast um and that's goes to the instant gratification process too of why is this person successful or why is this happening oh must be this you know um so yeah it's um similarly one of those things i just like i never expected to like you know receive emails that were like mm-hmm. uh, never trust a jew you know like um <laughs> but like 
in this music business, there's certain doors until you get to that level, you're not allowed inside the door to really see what's going on. You understand sometimes, and you might think, okay, everything is good. But once you get in the door, it's like, whoa, this is what's really going on here. And I'm not sure if that might be a situation where, hey, what if I do get to here and I open this door and I finally say, hey, this is what's really going on behind this door here. There's all sorts of issues with power in the music industry. There's all sorts of issues with people signing crazy agreements so they don't realize what they're agreeing to. Um, there's all sorts of history of people being taken advantage of and a history of white executives taking advantage of black artists. Mm -hmm. That is all true, right? But to conflate power and white with Jewish is where the issue comes into play. Mm -hmm. And to conflate they may, there may be some people who are Jewish and there may be some people who are Christian and some people who are Muslim and some people who are Hispanic and some people are Asian who might be doing these things to then say, oh, there's a conspiracy of all these people of this ethnicity or religion doing that. That to me is where the problem comes into place. Um, because once we start getting into this world where we're pitting groups against each other. Like that's ultimately what white supremacists want. That's ultimately what certain politicians want, you know, divide and rule and conquer. Mm -hmm. So I just think it's important to have a historical understanding of these different things. Um, and the place that these different groups and ethnicities have played in history and over time and have allied together um, on all sorts of things that have pushed forward change um, because it gets really dangerous when people start buying into um, conspiracies. Mm -hmm. Got you. And again, just to put it out there, I, I've never met a Jewish executives and said, this is what's going to happen. They're out to do bad stuff to me. It's I'm not in those rooms. So to me, none of that really matters. I'm not here nor there. None of that matters. I meet you as an individual. Hey, Adam's a good guy. Let's do some business with Adam. That's all that matters. You're a good guy. Your company is good. That's the only thing that really matters. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's all That's all you can ask for. And the only way we can you know, look at people. Definitely right there. You're somebody that's really in tune with a lot of stuff. And I've really been niching down on this conversation here. AI. But I'm going to add some more elements. AI, VR, and AR. What do you think is in store for the music business when all of those stuff really come into play? Because I'm going to even tell you another part, because I know a lot of artists in the last probably year or two years started to sell their catalogs and stuff. So I'm not sure if that's associated with the AR and VR and all of this, but you take it from here. You give me your thoughts on something on it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy, man. The 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 innovation that has happened over these past few months mm -hmm. um, is absolutely crazy. I mean, just, just, just the um, injection of just chat GBT into our like everyday lives and, and how much value that can actually create and time that can save um, for, for us is, is, is there's a lot of positives from it. There's also a lot of negatives from of it as well, especially in terms of like once these tools can learn, um, certain things and then you know in theory take over um, and become smarter than humans um and 
you know, there's all sorts of uh, implications of that in terms of, um, you know, all of a sudden, like, how do you know if uh, that video that showed that person shooting that person is real or if somebody manufactured that video? You know, there's all sorts of layers of it over time where it's like, you know, what's real and what's not real. So it's scary. Now, in relation to music, you know, I think there's a few different sides of it. You know, one one point that um, I really liked about kind of this AI music thing that uh, Troy Carter um, said some time ago was that when the drum machine was first invented, people were terrified um, that this was going to take over. Uh, you know, the drummers were all going to be out of business and it's just the human element of music is going to be gone. In reality, the drum machine has unlocked another lever of creativity by which people can put forward um, you know, new ideas and, you know, create music in another way where ideas um, and creativity move to the forefront and the execution moves, uh, you know, towards the back. So I think at a high level, you know, the way that the AI stuff can be used in a positive way is by pushing ideas and creativity forward um, and being able to use these tools to, to, to help uh, pursue those creative goals, you know? Um, I think there's a lot of challenges and a lot of concerns behind, um, you know, things like all these AI songs that are being injected into the platform. Just Spotify just had to like literally go in and delete like thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of, of songs that were uploaded because um, it can kind of eat into the overall streaming pie and that'll actually uh, hurt real human artists because there'll be all these AI created songs that are gener generating money. So that's, you know, one of the concerns of it. The thing is, I think that this idea of the human connection and that, that, that artists have with fans and that fans have with their favorite artists when they're choosing who their favorite artists are, that is never going to be able to be replicated. Mm -hmm. And that value creation that artists put out there for their fans is never going to be replicated by a computer. So that's to me where things have to kind of push, right? If you're an artist, it always comes back to focusing back to those basics on how to build an audience, how to get better at the music, how to be creating uh, art that adds positive value to people's lives beyond just the music, but you as a person, you know, people are so sick of, dealing with all sorts of crap in their lives. And when they're scrolling through social media or scrolling through uh, a streaming platform or whatnot, like they're looking for something that's going to positively impact them. So to me, it's just about knowing that the human connection element that allows people to love art and music, that's never going to go away. And I think that it's just important that any artist or creative um, stays ahead of the curve on learning these tools. Um, because as much as you want to fight them, they're not going anywhere. So how can you take advantage of them um, and use them to push your human creation forward, uh, I think is the direction uh, that, that people have to look at. It's going to be interesting because imagine there's a AI artist now. The AI artist has like millions of followers on Instagram. But the thing with now being an AI artist is I could answer every single comment. So if the AI is getting, say, 10,000 comments per post, he could actually 
answer all 10,000 comments. And then now you could see him live, but it's not even live. It's a hologram like they did Michael Jackson and Tupac and stuff like that. Yeah. So then you know that exists and people pay for it. So then that's where it gets kind of complicated because us as being around long before AI and stuff like that, so we might not buy into an AI artist per se, but the kids coming up, if they buy into it, that's going to change the entire landscape of the business itself. Yeah. And I'll say this, you know, being at um, Coachella this year, seeing the level of production and visuals um, and the place that things are at right now, like it's crazy to think about where it's going to go. Like, especially for like the big, like EDM sets and the DJs, like it's basically all about the visuals. You know, the DJ is like standing there in the back doing his thing or her thing. But what you're looking at is the visuals and they have these crazy 3D visuals where you're standing there and you're like, I didn't think I took mushrooms, but I feel like I'm tripping balls right now. You know, <laughs> like, like, like it's, it's, it's that kind of level of, of, of experience already. Mm -hmm. So you can see how these AI artists, um, especially in the electronic space, um, you know, can really get, get pushed forward. Now, someone still has to be behind that AI artist, mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, it's just one of those, it's, it's like self-driving cars, you know, it's, it's, it's just automation uh, comes into play. Uh, but how can you take advantage of, of, of it? Because yeah, there's going to be AI artists. There's going to be human artists. There's going to be combo of both uh, it's, it's just going to happen. And, and regarding the, the, your question about the catalog sales, I don't think that the catalog sales necessarily is correlated with the, with the AI stuff. Mm -hmm. The catalog sales in large part was happening due to kind of the state of the economy and money being really cheap, uh, to borrow and just generally, um, you know, investment firms then going after these assets, um, that would generate long-term revenue. So like, you know, if you, if you go after an artist who's, catalog has been streaming for 30 years 40 years that's why you saw like big rock stars like bruce springsteen and sting like because the catalogs that have been long around for longer are valued much higher because the multiples that are applied are usually based around how many years those songs have been out for mm -hmm. um and then those artists when they sell those catalogs uh if they're u.s based you know they lock in capital gains tax rates instead of having to pay ordinary income tax rates over a long period of time. So you can have that money up front, pay less taxes on it than you would if you got a huge multiple. If you got like a 20x multiple, like someone who's been around for 30 plus years, mm -hmm. uh, you can get that money today in, in, invested in real estate or whatever the hell you want um, and kind of move forward from there. And then also, I think you have certain like companies overvaluing um, the catalog uh, because... Um, they see other companies investing in it and there's this kind of principle in investing where once one of the big companies is going after it, then everyone kind of follows. And then it's about kind of growing like a diversified portfolio of as many of these income streams as possible and then packaging them together and then potentially selling it um, again later on. Um, and I also think that there's a lot of people who are, and this is a, I don't know, not a controversial set thing to say, but like maybe I'm not sure if people in the finance world would fully agree with it, but mm -hmm. I think that 
people who have been who've made a lot of money investing in all sorts of stuff, the one thing that they don't have that they still want is like the coolness factor. Mm-hmm. And I think music it has that. That's one thing Shaggy actually um mm-hmm. has said a lot is is this this coolness factor. Um, you know, like you can have all the money in the world, but you still don't feel like the rock star. Um, and maybe if you start investing in music related things and you can start getting tickets and you can start, you know, hanging out with these different artists then you can maybe start, start feeling that too. So, um, so even, so like even VR, because yesterday I think it was Apple just released their, their new VR glasses where you could see right through it and stuff. Where do you think artists and music is going to fit into the VR and AR space? Yeah, the, the 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 new Apple product. It's crazy. I mean, I don't see my spe- myself spending thirty five hundred dollars on that product uh, just yet. Um, like that, I was like when that when that came out. But I know a lot of people will. It's an Apple product, so people spend whatever the hell they ask for. Okay, <laughs> keep this in mind. Let me let me drop a little bug on you. Remember, Apple just opened like a bank or something like that. So then, if Apple has their own bank. You don't have to buy the product 35 up front. Hey, we'll put it over, amortize over 24 months, 36 months. And then that's how they get everybody into the product. Yeah, now it's smart and and people will people will spend that money and eventually, you know, maybe everyone will use those those headsets. You know, it'd be interesting to see because, you know, there was the Google Glass um, and there have been other things in the past that didn't really take off. Um, I think... Uh, even kind of Facebook slash Meta's investment in like the metaverse, um, kind of thinking that was going to, the metaverse was going to start happening way sooner. Um, so there's no way to know for sure. There's definitely something that feels weird to me about like wearing this thing and then like, I don't know, like we already have, it's already insanely annoying that like your phone b- buzzes at all times and then you immediately look at it and it takes you away from whatever your focus is. Um, so the idea of that is just another layer of that. But beyond that, you know, that part of it on the music side, to me, the way to think about it is, okay, here's another platform in which people are going to spend their time and attention. So then how do we figure out how to utilize that time and attention to get music rolling in that situation, right? So I think that's, that's just the way I would think about like any new technology. It's just like, okay, so, you know, what are people going to be doing in that headset and what and how does how does music play a role in what those people are doing in that headset? And then let's figure out how to to you know to to push that forward. It makes sense that you know Apple's probably going to push um, a lot of Apple Music related things um, within that headset. So continuing to grow on Apple Music, you know, is essential. It's likely that they're going to be bringing in a lot of the, the kind of existing players um, to be able to you know utilize what's going on there. Um, and then it kind of, you know, the other thing is like the, the VR concerts, obviously. Um, I think, I think people thought during COVID that virtual concerts were like this thing that was here to stay. I don't know. I've, it's, I don't think it's necessarily been as big of a thing as people thought it would be just the virtual concerts because like being at a concert is like way more enjoyable than watching it on your laptop. Um, however, we can get to a place where you can put on these VR headsets, which they basically are able to do already. And you can set up your headphones or even in theory, like a Dolby Atmos speaker system. And you can put on this headset 
and feel like you're actually at the concert, there's something there, you know? And being able to have these live events that have the in-person component and then have that VR component, you know, it's kind of like with football, um, like American football, like the, the concept that like a lot of people over the years have said that they just prefer watching it on TV than being at a game because of all the information and the experience of watching it on TV. I don't think we're going to get there with concerts because the live element is crucial, mm-hmm. but the idea of that VR situation and if that can help artists um, generate additional income from their touring for people who are not in person, that's awesome. You know, imagine if we can get to a place where, you know, even when you're playing a 400 cap venue or something that you can also have that VR opportunity for those. And it reminds me almost of like the way that, uh, the, the big sports leagues handle like the blacking out of markets. Like, mm-hmm. like if you're, um, subscribed to like the NBA, uh, league pass thing or, or NBA TV, these things like you can't watch games, uh, that are, in your market that are on a different cable channel, but you can watch those games in every other market. So you could have a system where, um, you know, you can only buy a ticket to the VR headset. If you are geo targeted shown to not be within the market of the live show so that you're not eating into people who might buy tickets to the show and instead are buying tickets to the VR experience, you know, but if you're, you know, in Toronto and the show is in San Francisco, um, then, you know, sure, sell that ticket. Makes total sense. But I'm just thinking out loud. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes thinking out loud produces the best results because that's where you find everything just by running through your mind right there. I got got a couple more for you before I get you out of here. Another big thing here is you hear a lot of people talk about buying views and then promoing a video. Please explain what's the biggest difference with somebody actually buying views or somebody promoting a video on YouTube? Yeah, so buying views to me is has no worthwhile uh, uh, piece in the, in the process. Now, I understand people might just want to have a lot of views, and then that might help them, in theory, get other opportunities or have this thing, but I just think that it's not really a sustainable option to, to growing your song or your fan base. The flip side is promoting a video. Um, you, you know, you can run ads um, on, you know, YouTube and other places that will directly count as views. Um, and you can get those views up pretty fast through that process, but they're real views, mm-hmm. you know? So you can spend money in markets and target areas that you think are going to help that video get uh, more views and in theory, you know, you could spend all that money in really cheap cost advertising countries um, to just jack up the view count. Um, but still, if it's not an area where those people are going to turn into fans, what's the point? The flip side is if you could spend money advertising your video via those YouTube ads in areas where um, there is a chance that people become fans, then, you know, it makes sense, right? Um, so I would say that's the kind of two different sides of it mm-hmm. with promotion versus just buying. Cause buying is okay. You could buy a hundred thousand views worth it within the next 24 hours. You have a hundred thousand views and a thousand crazy comments, something like that. But if it's promo now, it's actually going to real people that potentially, if it's targeted, right, potentially 
interested in this product here. Yeah, exactly. And 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 one of the ways to see whether those are like fake views or even if they're advertised views is like if the comments and the likes aren't like catching up with that view count. Like if you go to a video and it has a million views and like 80 likes, probably not <laughs> legit, you know? Mm-hmm. I agree with you 100%. We spoke about the business of the business. I want to talk about a couple of the artists that I've known you work with. I'm not sure in what capacity, but we're going to find out now. Somebody like uh, Anthony B. How did you guys connect and in what capacity are you guys working with Anthony B? Yeah, Anthony B., um, we initially started working together when we were working on the 2020 Kali Buds, Kali Reach Rhythm. Mm-hmm. and we sent that song over to him and he turned it back over within 24 hours mm-hmm. and it was dope like big song mm-hmm. and it's called chill out and actually has become like his top song on streaming platforms okay. and so that's where the that's where it started now we did that rhythm project in a way where the artists um like anthony b did were accounted for in a way that they weren't used to. So Anthony B basically has been making very good money from this song every month. He gets a check every month for it. Most rhythms, people never see any money on the back end. So Anthony B had basically all these different big songs he was making nothing from. And this song comes out and starts kind of crushing and, you know, being a huge song for him. And then from that process, uh, we started working together more. We've done uh, we've done an album for him. Uh, we've done other other projects for him. Um, he's been a really great um, friend, and you know, kind of like always spreading the positive word, and like just 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 gets it and understands his brand and his business and his fans at a really high level, and has gotten very good at the social media game. Um, it's really a great example for like how an artist can um, really push in that in that direction at this point in their career. For sure, even Demarco. Demarco, we worked on an album, uh, album called Melody. Roll out a bunch of singles into the album. Unbelievable album. Um, Demarco is a ridiculous producer, writer, artist. People don't really realize that like DeMarco produced Party Animal, mm-hmm. you know, like, like, like that's his beat. Um, you know, he's one of the best producers in, in the game uh, and really versatile. And that project really showed his versatility. So it was really, really fun working on that album with him. Definitely. Even the, um, the expand, the expandables. Expandables is a management uh, client um, and a label client too. Mm-hmm. You guys, you guys been working with them for a bit, or this is something newer? Uh, it's probably like I want to say like three or four years. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, Jesse Royal. Jesse Royal's a management client. Uh, he's been a management client for probably man. I have no sense of time now that I think about these things, but probably a year, maybe less than a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've known Jesse for for a long time. Um, Jesse's one of my favorite artists. He's, he's an amazing and awesome person. For sure. Um, Jay Bugs from um, Hawaii. Jay Bug. Uh, we've been working with Jay Bug for also, I want to say, like 
a year or so. Man, I, again, I've literally no sense of time, but I want to say a year or so. Jay Boog is a complete legend. I mean, Let's Do It Again is a is a is a classic, mm-hmm. classic record. He's working on all sorts of new music uh, that we're going to be rolling out um, soon. Um, he just hopped on the that Licky Ticky reggae remix with Kess that I was talking about. Uh, he's got a song coming out this Friday, or depending on when this thing is aired, um, on the 2023 Cali Roots Rhythm. Um, so yeah, all sorts all sorts of cool stuff coming from him. Okay, and the um, even we brought them up a couple of times. Kess, what's the relationship like with Kess? Yeah, Kess is a label a label client. Um, man, I'm I, I, as I said before, I'm like such a such a huge fan of of Kess and and the, their whole team. Um, you know, I was out in Trinidad actually uh, in uh, February during Carnival time and got to see like their show in Trinidad. It's just a crazy thing to experience. Uh, but we've also kind of set them up with um, you know a U.S. agent so we can kind of get them into some new places as well. So they kind of toured out on the West Coast for the first time. We helped get them on Cali Roots Festival, which got Soka in front of a whole new audience who had never really heard of Soka before um, and really exp- exposed them to that Cali reggae um, audience. Um, and so Kess, it's been like just a really amazing process rolling out all these different songs and, and seeing that audience uh, grow so fast. Uh, I think it's just music that that can fit in a lot of places. Good. What do you find is the biggest difference between like a soca market or reggae market dealing with a reggae artist composed opposed to a soca artist? What's the biggest difference? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, what I'll say about the soca market and is that in and is that is that Trinidad, it's like there's a real like local active scene that everybody supports especially during this carnival season um and if you're one of those big artists you put a song out and you turn on the radio in trinidad it's on the radio immediately um and then if you're there during that season it's performed live a million times during that period of time so there is this very um like cohesive nature of the way that that space works in trinidad where i don't think it's you it's all hit reliant it's not hit reliant you don't have to have the biggest song in the world for people to listen to your song so they create an opportunity to really grow that sustainable fan base that we're talking about and those fans exist beyond trinidad to the point where you know kes can come to the bay area and play a show in berkeley for the first time you know last uh i want to say fall and sell it out um and have all these, you know, uh, fans come out who have been fans of his forever because it's kind of spread so globally with this sustainable, consistent release. So that's the thing that I'm really, I really love about Soka and I'm really excited about with Soka is I think the music is just like happy, party, good time music. And once you see it live, you really get it, especially Kess. You you don't need to ever have listened to Soka before to see the show and then become a fan. Um, so that's what I think is really unique about that space. Mm-hmm. That right there. Listen, right now we're at the end of this conversation right here. If there's anything you want to say, anything you want to big up, leave some handles. The floor is yours 100% before we go. No, just shout out to you, man. I, um, it's funny. I was telling you before that the, the interview you did with Jeremy Harding, um, you know, Pee Wee had sent that to me and be like, yo, you have to listen to this. You have to watch this. Like there's so much to learn from it. Um, so hopefully 
somebody feels the same way about this interview we did just now and shares it and helps somebody learn something in the same way that I've learned from, from stuff you've done in the past. So that's what I hope we were able to get out in this podcast, man. So really appreciate uh, you having me on and, and, and for doing this all the time and just helping getting information out there. Thank you. And hopefully now that we're speaking to you, we could probably cross pollinate where, okay, yeah, we have the reggae. Now we could introduce some Cali Roots artists, some more soca artists to the platform to really flourish right across the board. Totally, man. That's the, that's the idea of bringing all the different spaces together. Into one. And if they want to check you out, anything you're doing, the record label, anything, the company, leave some social media handles where they can check you out. Yeah, so you can you can check out our website at ineffablemusic.com. Uh, the label arm is at ineffablerecords.com. Follow us at ineffablerecords, at ineffablemusic. Uh, you can follow me at adam.g.r.o.s.s. <laughs> That's Adam Gross. Um, I wish I didn't. I wish I could have just gotten at Adam Gross at the dots, uh, but you know the dots are in there. So, <laughs> just like that, Adam. Excellent conversation. I know this is the first of many conversations we're going to have because, again, it's, sure. I, I almost see you, as I told you, the Gary V, where you're always giving information, giving information, and information changes so rapidly right now that our conversation even two months, two years from now, is going to be so different than this one yep. here just because of how crazy things are going. Yep. We got to keep it moving. You understand. Adam, let me give you an outro and get you from this excellent epic conversation about the business of the business. You understand? Thanks, man. Wow. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is Muscle, and this has been another Two Line Music Huts Entertainment Report podcast, and we are out. Erks. This podcast is brought to you by www.twolinesmusichut.com. <laughs>